Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies. That the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles. That, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. My name is Taylor, and as always, Tanner will be joining me here in a few. Um, Just a quick note, this is part two of a four-part Lusitania series, so if you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that first. Or don't. I don't really care, but uh, it might make more sense if you do the first one first. That stuff out of the way. Uh, Tanner, how you doing? I'm doing fine. We had a little break between this and recording our finally recording our bonus episode. Uh, are we recording? Yeah, and it worked this time. It, it, it worked. The, the Zencaster gods were happy. So that that is good. Um, another thing that's good is we have some new patrons to shout out. We have Haley, Craig, and Frederick. So thank you guys very much. Hope you enjoy the bonus content like the episode we just recorded. Always thankful for that. Um, our Patreon is patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. So if you feel like it, check it out. Tanner does a lot of cool stuff with a uh, series called um, Dead Reckoning. Dead Reckoning. I don't know why I blanked on it. Check that out. All right. Um, let's move on to the media check-in part of the intro. Tanner, what have you been up to? Uh, Katie and I watched the movie Lolita, the Stanley Kubrick one Mm -hmm. that has uh, James Mason in it as Professor Humbert. I I have not watched or read Lolita, but I did listen to the Lolita podcast by Jamie Loftus. I've never read it. I do want to listen to the podcast, though. That movie is funny because uh, Shelley Winters plays Lolita's Mm -hmm. mom. And (laughs) we have a Shelley Winters connection here because I think it was our first bonus episode or one of, we talked about the movie The Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, yeah, that is a little connection there. So yeah, that, that was a good movie. It was a lot funnier than I expected it to be. And also apparently, because I've never read the book, very, very, very toned down compared to what the book depicts. Yeah, that's what I think in the, the in Jamie Loftus's podcast, she kind of talks about some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's pretty much it for me. It's been fun seeing the college football bowl game picture kind of take shape. I know we were talking about that. We'll do a bowl pick competition for the show. So we'll get that out pretty soon here. Other than that, there's a new season of Overwatch that just started. So that's fun. Um, Got some new things to work through there. So is a season of Overwatch, is it like a new like campaign? No, it's really just a way for them to milk you for more money. They oh. just release like a new battle pass and then they'll update like the themes. So like it's kind of a wintry Christmas theme now. Oh, okay. Um, they introduced a new hero into the game. So, oh, so it's, it's a, just, it's just like Warhammer. Kind of. Yeah. It's just like an update, a refresher. And then it's just like, but give us more money now, please. That, but it's fun because, you know, gives you some achievements and all that. So that's what I've been up to. That and working on this uh, Lusitania podcast, it just mm-hmm. keeps growing. I know originally we had said it was going to be a three-parter, and I think I got halfway through the notes for part two, and I was like, yeah, this can't, we can't do it in three parts. we got to do it in four. So, yeah. Which is good, because I feel like we can uh, 
take our time now. We don't have to rush. It's so hard um, when you start to do these, you start to, well, I have to explain this, which means I have to explain this. And you, before you know it, you're going back to like 1850 looking at things. Right. So yeah, with all that done, let's, uh, let's do Lusitania part two. Um, so today we're going to be focusing a lot more on the ship and some other background stuff. And we'll kind of get to the part where we begin our voyage. But uh, there's a lot to fill in in between there. Um, so to start with, Lusitania was launched on June 7th, 1906. And she's built by John Brown and Company of Clydebank, Scotland. They're also notable for constructing ships such as the RMS Queen Mary and Lusitania's sort of sister ship, RMS Aquitania. Mauritania and Lusitania were actually running mates. Um, her sister ship is launched in 1906, and she's actually about five feet longer than Lusitania. So they're basically the same vessel, but uh, just some slight differences. I feel like anytime you're building something that big, you're not going to make a one-for-one -one copy. I was going to say, was that a intentional difference, or was that just like it happened to work out that way? I think it's just some slight design changes and things like that. You know, you start changing around what type of engines or something, and all of a sudden you have to play with the design a little bit. Uh, but as far as Lusitania goes, uh, she's 787 feet long. She has an 87-foot beam and a draft of around 33.6 feet. So she wow. is a large vessel. Yes. Think Empress of Ireland-esque. Hmm. Uh, so during her construction, the Lusitania is actually referred to as the Scottish ship. And that's to distinguish her from the Mauritania, which is being built by Swan Hunter in England. Not like Macbeth. Like, it's bad luck to say it, so they have to call it the Scottish ship. <laughs> uh, I got, I'm sure there was an illusion there, right? So in order to accommodate such a large vessel, the John Brown and company was actually forced to reconfigure their shipyard. Uh, traditionally, vessels were launched at a point where the River Clyde is about 610 feet wide. So in order to accommodate this new vessel, they actually had to combine two of their spillways into one so they could launch at an angle where hmm. the Clyde meets a tributary. So they literally had to reconfigure their dockyard Amazing. to build this ship. I think the last time we talked about the Clyde River area was when we talked about uh, the Paisley Canal disaster. Because mm -hmm. at that point, we talked about how silty and awful the Clyde River was. And so they needed this canal. Well, funny you should say that. In addition the to the reorganization, the company spent a lot of money dredging out the Clyde. They also had to build a new gas and electric plant and have a new crane installed. So nice. this is like a major capital investment, you know, that even goes into building the ship. Wow. So she would be launched on June 7th, 1906, nearly eight weeks behind schedule, which I think you kind of expect in a big project like that. Mm-hmm. At her launch, thousands of people gather to watch the massive ship enter the water. Like, you know, we've talked about this before. These are events, you know, community events. This is a big deal. That leads us to July 27th, when the Lusitania went out for her initial trials. Um, on board are members of Cunard Lines, John Brown and Company, and the British Admiralty. And we'll kind of get into more why those various groups are involved as, as we talk more about <laughs> this. There's a lot of interesting things that go on kind of behind the scenes. Uh, so during these trials, uh, the vessel is able to hit a top speed of 25.6 knots over the distance of one mile. So that's pretty fast for the time period. 
It is, especially because like last week, obviously, we talked a little bit about uh, submarines. And so I've been thinking a lot about those and comparing that to some of the speeds you talk about with submarines, especially one that's submerged. Mm -hmm. This, you know, this is a totally different ball game here. Yeah, especially these like World War One submarines. Like if you're submerged, I think you're looking at like six knots. You might not even be able to like make forward progress if you're fighting (laughs) a strong current. Mm hmm. So with this high speed, however, though, there's a new issue that becomes apparent after the ship is built. And that is that there's a horrible vibration at the stern section of the ship. So that's <laughs> bad. You don't, you don't really want that. <laughs> uh, making that even worse, this is where all the second class accommodations were. And apparently this vibration was so bad that these accommodations were considered uninhabitable. Hmm. So it must have been pretty bad if it was like, by the standards of the day uninhabitable, right? <laughs> yeah, if, if it sounds like this thing's going to like rattle itself apart. This reminded me a little bit of, I, I just watched a video of a dog. It was like a Rottweiler or something, literally chewing off pieces of a Tesla. <laughs> and I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of it doing it to this ship with all its rattling around. Uh, so this vibration was determined to be caused by interference from the wake of the outer propeller and the inner ones combining. Oh, so that's that's bad. You don't want that. Um, In order to combat this, there had to be a total redesign of the second class passenger area. Many pillars and arches were added in the area, which broke up some of the decorative plans, but it did somewhat temper the issues. It made them better. It didn't make them go away, apparently. Right. This vibration continued to be a bother for the ship and was never fully eliminated throughout her life. There's a solution to that. <laughs> yeah. On July 29th, the vessel embarks on our sea trials. And this test is kind of like a way to get VIPs on board. So they're brought on board the vessel. They end up spending two nights on her. It's a way to kind of shake everything out, see what works, see what doesn't. It's how you figure out if your second class is haunted by a vibration, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and during this test, she's able to make a run at 26.5 knots for about 60 miles. So it's pretty clear here, you know, this is a very luxurious ship, but speed is what's like really the the main feature here. Thinking back to this, the what goes into getting these engines up to speed and keeping them up to speed is really impressive to be able to have that um, that speed and, and keep that speed up. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, actually, um, as we'll talk about later, like the speed really is one of her most noteworthy aspects. And once we get closer to like wartime, you know, this is talked about as basically these ships primary defense mechanism is the fact that they're so much faster than the U-boats that are presumably going to be hunting them. And I thought this is interesting. I was looking through some old magazines and newspapers um, from around this time of her launch. And I found this one from Scientific American uh, from August 29th of 1908. And it says... The Cunarder Lusitania has added to her glory by beating her former short course record from Daunt's Rock outside Queenstown to Sandy Hook Lightship by three hours and 40 minutes. Her new time between the starting and finishing lines of the course is, adding five hours for the difference between our own and the British clock, four days and 15 hours. Her best previous performance, also over the short northern course, which was completed on November 2nd last, was four days, 18 hours and 40 minutes. On her best day's run, on the nautical day ending at noon on Monday, when she covered 650 nautical miles in 25 hours and 20 minutes, her average speed was 25.66 knots. 
I think what's interesting is it's the pinnacle kind of engineering and, you know, it's, it's revered, but it also works. Mm-hmm. It isn't Tesla. You know what I mean? It isn't something <laughs> right. like that. Like it's interesting seeing like a technology actually make people's lives better or allow for migration and, you know, that kind of thing. And the people credited with building it actually built it. That too. And it doesn't set itself on fire. May Well, kind that's debatable in Lusitania's case, I guess. Depends on what she has in the trunk. If you catch my drift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the interior interior of the vessel. And we'll also talk a little bit about competition, kind of what some of the other shipping lines are doing at the time. So both Lusitania and Mauritania were among the most opulent vessels afloat. So like when we say that speed was what her defining feature was, there's still like a certain baseline level of like luxuriousness we're talking about. Like it's not like she's uncomfortable. Like you wouldn't be like out of place thinking of like a Titanic esque interior. It's still Mm -hmm. very opulent by our standards of travel today and everything. Right. (laughs) It's not the Southwest airlines flight. The, Interior designer that's brought in is actually a Scottish architect who was selected to design Lusitania's interior. It's a man by the name of James Miller. He was primarily known for designing various like notable works around Scotland and everything. Mm-hmm. He's not someone who necessarily was involved in ship design. So he primarily used plaster on the inside of the vessel, and this results in a bright and vibrant interior. So, you know, he's definitely going for, I think, Think of more of like a courtyard kind of vibe. Like when you get to see like an interior area that's made to look outside, mm-hmm. a lot of the vessel was very bright and airy. That's cool. Uh, the Mauritania, on the other hand, was primarily interiored in wood. So it kind of results in a darker, more rich environment. So a little probably felt a little smaller, but also that kind of rich mahogany kind of thing going on. The thing that worked out so well for the Noronic. Yes. Yep. Wood. Wood everywhere. Um, So as was common at the time, the ship is sectioned into three different classes of passengers. And they're absolutely kept separated from each other. Hmm. I thought that was interesting because like, I don't really have a concept of that. Like you you go on a cruise or something and like, it's just Disneyland on water, right? Like you just go wherever and all that. But with this, like the first class passengers didn't really interact with the second class passengers. I was reading, um, I think this is from the Daniel Allen Butler one about the the child care on mm-hmm. the ship, saying how, you know, for the first class people, obviously, they, you know, they had their their servants, their maids, whatever, who were sometimes with them taking care of the kids. There was like a child care area that like mm-hmm. kind of the, the second class could leave people in, whereas like the, the third class passengers, there wasn't really any sort of. Um, accommodation for that so basically if you were uh if you were in the third class and you were a kid like you were probably the only ones who had any fun on the ship because you could go wherever you wanted to go do whatever you want get in trouble yeah yeah Yeah, we'll talk more about some of the class composition stuff here for each not class composition i guess but more of like amenities and everything Mm -hmm. it it is interesting Uh, so we'll talk about the first class section that section is located in the central part of the vessel and it's on the five most upper decks So the vessel could accommodate 552 first-class passengers when fully loaded. 
And the first class interiors are a variety of historical architecture types. There's not really a central theme other than a mix of various like Greco-Roman and you know, French countryside kind of architectural styles. Uh, the ship's most grand room is the first class dining area. And that could accommodate 470 people on two different floors. So it's kind of got like a mezzanine level that overlooks the main main level and everything. There's a huge dome and everything that kind of makes that room feel very big and open. And same thing with those lighter wall features. It just felt like a very bright and open space. Mm-hmm. This room is actually adorned in a neoclassical Louis XVI style. And this would provide the opulence that's expected by the high-class clientele. You know, a lot of these people are old money. You're talking Vanderbilts, things like that. The production is part of it, right? Like that that's they want to be they want to live in that opulence. If I was a rich person enjoying my richness and trying not to think about the idea of consequences, <laughs> I wouldn't name the style Louis the Sixteenth. Right. Personally. Uh so we'll move on to the second class area here. Um, that's located in the stern section of the vessel. Uh, this space could accommodate 460 people at one time. It's interesting that the second class dining area is essentially a smaller and slightly less nice version of the first class space. And it was the second class area you said that was afflicted by the, the rattling. Correct. Right? Correct. They, uh, unfortunately couldn't stick the third class passengers where the vibrations came from. So the second class dining area, like I said, it's just a slightly less nice version of the first class. Still very nice. It's only confined to one floor. It has a smaller dome. But overall, (laughs) the aesthetics are pretty similar. A smaller dome. If first class is fine dining, second class is kind of like, what's a restaurant that's nice but not too nice? Perkins. That's (laughs) We all know Perkins is the third class section. <laughs> I would put like a George Webb or something down in third class. <laughs> Waffle House. Yeah. Waffle House. Yeah, that's definitely that. I don't know. Think of like your Red local Robin. S- Red Robin. Yeah. So that's something that's just slightly better than going to get fast food. <laughs> it's like the, the Twitter stuff where people are like explaining stuff to Americans and they're like, imagine a cheeseburger. And so this <laughs> is like talking about class differences. It's like, okay, so think about a restaurant. So. <laughs> yeah. Think about a burger joint. Um, So cabins in the second class were comfortable. However, one of the big things here is you're going to share your accommodations. So if it's a four berth room, you might not know everyone that's in all four of those Mm. berths, but you will by the end of the trip. Right. (laughs) So that's really the only difference. You know, you still have a private, it's kind of like a hostel, I think, situation almost, but definitely more privacy than you would ever have in third class. I feel like that would be a situation like at the time, if you had you had like a uh, a Chris Farley David Spade comedy where they <laughs> are they go across sh- the ocean together. They meet each other by sharing a sharing a room. I feel like too though it was probably less weird than than it is now. I think just it wasn't life just a little more communal in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think I think especially for modern Americans, we have a we have a uh, an expectation of personal space and privacy that we've become accustomed to Mm -hmm. that hasn't been the same, you know, over time and and isn't the same everywhere. Yeah. So I think that is interesting that I think it's a little surprising by our standards to be like, wow, you had to share space in second class, but Mm -hmm. it would have been considered pretty private for the time. That brings us to third class. As was the case on all Cunard ships, third class is located on the forward end of the vessel. 
I can only assume that this is because they wanted them to act as a sort of buffer in a, in a random <laughs> situation. Absorb the iceberg. <laughs> the dining room was finished in a polished pine and actually proved to be exceptionally comfortable for standard third class accommodations. As much as we're joking about the third class, Lusitania's is actually pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Rather than the vast open spaces that were common in the third class sections of the vessels of its time, uh, Lusitania's third class section had a variety of rooms with anywhere between two and eight berths. So basically, third class is just not as nice accommodations. Like you don't have the nice dining room and everything, and you're probably going to share space with even more people, but you do at least have like a space that is yours versus what we see, I think in like Titanic where they show steerage and it's just an open black pit with like cops and stuff. (laughs) Right. It, 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 it seems at least, you know, kind of like now where it's like, if you're like just like a single person traveling somewhere on your own, you don't need a ton of stuff. I mean, you, you need a place to be basically and a Mm -hmm. a little bit of uh, space around you. Yeah. This is like the, like a less nice hostel essentially. Mm -hmm. But it's not like it doesn't look like a troop ship the way they make it look in Titanic. This will bring us on to the captain of Lusitania, William Thomas Turner. He's born on October 23rd, 1859 in Liverpool, England. His father, Charles Turner, is actually also a sailor. So like so many people we see, it does run in the family. Hmm. Charles actually like so many sailors, didn't want his son to become a sailor. He wanted him to become a preacher. Uh, William refused to become what he referred to as a devil doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Devil doctors sounds like a band that would open for Electric Six at Mad Planet. It does. (laughs) However, William could not shake his love of the sea. And between the ages, between the age of eight or 13, William took to the sea for the first time. I love that we're still in that time period where we're not quite sure how old people are when things happen. And that point in time where an eight-year-old can go to see. 12-year-olds, eight-year-olds are going to see. Right. So actually, his first voyage is pretty notable. He is on board a vessel by the name of Grasmer. And she would actually run aground off the coast of Northern Ireland. Turner would swim to shore. But the funny thing is, everyone else is later rescued. So I don't know if he panics <laughs> and just knows he can swim and goes for it or whatnot, but it does note that he swam to shore and everyone else waited. So that's the most awkward waving by to someone and then you're walking the same direction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Turner would join Kennard on October 4th, 1877. His first assignment would be that of being a third mate on the steamship Cherbourg. On June 28th, 1880, Turner resigns from Cunard upon learning that Cunard would never promote anyone to captain without them first having been a master before joining the company. So essentially, you know, Cunard's like the big name in shipping, right? Like they can be selective is mm-hmm. their is their point. They don't have to take anybody. Yeah, that, that reminded me a little bit of like jobs now where it, it, you kind of have this endless circle of you need experience for this position. Mm-hmm. But. But you're not going to get it here. (laughs) How do I get this experience? Like, there's no opportunities. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And and like you said, the idea that they are somewhere that people are going to be competitive uh, to get Mm -hmm. into. So, yeah, they can be say, hey, you know, go somewhere else for five years and and captain a ship. 
And it's interesting too because it saves them money. It's like, well, why would we pay to train you? Go, yeah, exactly. You know, you get to see. You know, if, if a guy's going to make a, a a major mistake with a ship, let him do it with someone else's. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, so with this, Turner would go on to work as the master of a clipper ship after earning his master certificate. So you know, he wants it, and he's going to go find a way to get that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, While acting in this role, actually, in February of 1883, Turner has a pretty interesting, notable event happen. He actually witnesses a teenage boy fall into Liverpool Harbor while he's walking on the docks. And this is a time where even people that live near the the water don't really know how to swim. It's just not Mm -hmm. something a lot of people do, especially sailors. Like, I've always thought that was weird. You kind of assume that they do. However, Turner happens to be a strong swimmer. So he jumps into the icy water. He actually jumps in. He's you know, saves the boy, drags him up onto the dock. And because of this, the Liverpool Humane and Shipwreck Society presented Turner with a silver medal for his bravery. I would hang out at a Humane and Shipwreck Society today if I could, like, play with dogs and cats and talk about shipwrecks. Was the Humane Society at this point the same meaning no, that we use? Okay, so. I was going to say, that sounds like so. it was probably for actual humans. Yeah, yeah, it was. but Which are fine. But, but wouldn't but... it be nice to sit around and just talk about shipwrecks and, like, Play with dogs and cats and stuff. Cats and shipwrecks. I think it's so interesting with Turner. He's obviously there's a lot written about Turner. You know, any book mm-hmm. you read about Lusitania has at least one chapter just about him. And he's interesting because of the time that he is getting this experience because he, you know, he ends up getting this master's certificate in sail and steam. Mm-hmm. And as we said, you know, he's he's a strong swimmer. Basically, anything involving the sea he can handle. Basically, any ship on the planet. He, mm-hmm. he can get on board and, and, and captain ably. So it's, it's really interesting to see that, especially getting from this point on later into time where maybe guys train on a sailing ship, but they're not they're not serving on one, you know, in, mm-hmm. in their day to day jobs. Yeah, it's interesting. I like, just how respected as of a mariner he is. I mean, he testifies in some of the Titanic hearings and things for insurance purposes and things like that to try to determine fault. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly someone who's highly respected in the profession. Anyways, back to his backstory. Um, eventually, he gets married to his cousin. There you go. <laughs> it's still the 1880s and cousin marriage is popular. So you have your cousins and then you have your first cousins and then you have your second cousin. No, honey. Mm-hmm. Her name is Alice Hitching. And about the same time, he actually rejoins Cunard Line. Now that he has that experience. So things look like they're looking up. You got your cousin wife, you've got your master license, and you're back working for Cunard. So things are good. Although he had the requisite experience and certifications to meet Cunard standards, that didn't necessarily mean that he would rapidly advance through the ranks. Uh, This is something that would prove extremely frustrating for Turner, although it never resulted in like him wavering in his commitment to the job. So he never got burnt out. You know, it's it's hard sometimes to keep going to that job and not getting the promotion or, you know, not feeling appreciated. But um, he's not that guy. Like, he shows up every day and he wants to do do the work. And it makes sense from an industry perspective, seeing there's always a lot more people with the qualifications than there are positions available for them. So, I mean, right. you kind of have to wait for people to get out of the way, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of these guys are sailing you know, into their fifties and sixties. So there's a reason the stereotype is like the old, you know, right. sea captain. 
Uh, so Turner would rise from third officer to chief officer over the next 20 years. Throughout that time, Turner would find himself on 18 different vessels. So that's part of where that experience, I think, comes in of just being a competent mariner, right? Like you're exposed to all these different things. You just you have to problem solve a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Finally, on March 19th, 1903, Cunard places him in command of a vessel. He's given command of a small steamship named Aleppo, which operates in the Mediterranean. Can I drop the Gary Johnson soundbite of him saying, what is Aleppo? Yes, absolutely. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as so often, high highs come low lows. At that point, his cousin wife decides that she is taking their two boys and she's going to Australia. That's rough. Um, I can't imagine uh, being someone who's gone through a separation. I cannot imagine. Uh, it's hard enough having them 15 minutes away. I cannot imagine them moving to Australia. Australia. Yeah. So that's uh, that's. So that's a rough FaceTime right there. You know, not great, but I guess the other part of that is he's a sea captain. So what do you do? You bear yourself in your work and you go to sea, right? Mm-hmm. So with that, we've kind of touched on this um, about the reputation that Turner had. Um, he's noted for his excellent navigation skills. It's really interesting. He's not interested in how the boat works. He's not like one of these engineering people. He doesn't want to know technical details. He wants to sail the boat. He wants to be in charge. He wants to navigate. He wants to be a sailor. So I think that's very interesting. Um, another example from the Titanic depositions that he did, they asked him about the compartment doors for like Lusitania and how they would stop flooding. And he goes, I don't know. You close you close the door and it <laughs> stops the flooding. That's That's all I care about. I don't care about the technical details. These exceptional navigation skills allowed him to rise to the rank of captain despite him not possessing one of the most important skills that Keenard valued in its captains, people skills. But not people skills with the crew. He was more than willing to, you know, be a, a good leader. People skills with the passengers. Uh. A large part of the role of a Keenard captain, especially on their premier liners, is facing the passengers. You're the, you're the face of the company. If a complaint can't be solved, you get to solve it. It doesn't matter if it comes from the kitchen or from, you know, the engine room. At the end of the day, Kennard expected their captains to handle any issue. I, I think that's interesting, the role, like kind of the social role of being a, a passenger facing part of the crew in that, you know, you're one of these rich people getting on the ship. Like you had this expectation of, oh, you'll meet the captain. You get to see, you know, talk to him for, for a minute as you're getting on the ship, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we don't do it nearly as much, but. There is also that very small social expectation of, say, when you're getting on a plane. Yeah, you know, the you, pilot's there to greet you and everything. You expect that, you know, you maybe see him in the doorway there. You, at minimum, expect to hear his voice over the over the intercom. And mm-hmm. it's like, if you if you didn't hear that, yeah, it'd, be kind of, it'd be kind of unsettling not to hear that. It's just part of the uh, part of the system. Right. I assume so, it's been like it's been like 10 years since I've been on an airplane. <laughs> So captains at the time for Cunard were expected to interact with passengers, particularly the ones in first class. This issue would actually later be fixed for him. Uh, There would be a position created called staff captain for the more socially minded amongst uh, people of that level. 
And their job was basically to handle all the passenger issues. So that would let Turner focus on what he actually wanted to do, which that's kind of a, kind of a smart position to create in a way, because you probably have people who would rather just be a greeter and, Mm -hmm. you know, handle the social issues. It allows you to fill, promote people essentially. Right. It gives you one more spot to put someone because that's someone who, you know, still needs to know the ship and probably someone who maybe they, maybe they're happy to, you know, answer questions and talk about the ship and, and tell people all about it. It also gives you another competent person on board that could be the master of the ship mm-hmm. if they had to be. So I think I think that's interesting. Yeah, that seems like a very modern type of role to mm-hmm. come up with. Um, and some of these social engagements that uh, Turner or later the staff captain would have to do, you're talking dinners, tours of the vessel, just walking the vessel to engage people in small talk. There's actually guidelines written to be like, <laughs> talk to passengers about the weather or what book they're reading. It's very, <laughs> very interesting. Turner's thoughts about passengers can best be summed up by a quote from him. He described them as a load of bloody monkeys who are constantly chattering. <laughs> this man is a customer service man after my own heart. It's funny, though, when you have those jobs where it's like you love the job if it weren't for the customers. Right. Working in a grocery store. It's fine. You know, it's a kind of fun, actually. It's very satisfying. But if only there weren't any customers in the store. Right. <laughs> it's noted that Turner was a pretty strict disciplinarian on board his vessels. Although he's always careful to avoid being needlessly cruel, he did carry a pretty high expectation for his crew. He was a little bit of a prankster in a way, but not necessarily in a way that left everyone laughing. I know one story um, that Eric Larson tells in Dead Wake, he walks into a group of officers who are just playing cards. They're on a break or they're off duty. And he throws down a rope that's tied in a really intricate knot. (laughs) And he says, oh, I like that. Make me six more and just walks away. And they they weren't sure if he was joking or if he actually was going to (laughs) come back in like 20 minutes and expect to see this. So he, I think he is one of those people who was probably pretty uh, deadpan. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you couldn't always tell when he was joking. It's uncomfortable to have someone like that as your boss because it's like you don't know yeah, right. how to interact with that. Um, in his personal life, Turner was described as a kind man who was always, you know, willing to share a story, have a laugh. He particularly enjoyed being around children and animals, and that always seemed to bring out his best quality. So despite his grumpiness with some of the adult passengers, he was always more than willing to make a kid smile. I, I think a lot of people could identify with that. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's a perfectly healthy attitude. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on and talk a little bit about Cunard Lines itself. They're founded by Samuel Cunard in 1840 to fulfill a transatlantic mail contract that had been awarded in 1839. Uh, The company is originally known as the British and North American Royal Mail Steam Packet Company. It's quite Hmm. the name. But arms. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, With the help of shipping magnate Sir George Burns and steamship designer Robert Napier, they begin to form this into a pretty successful company. The line would initially start to operate with four paddle steamers, and they ran between Liverpool, Halifax, and Boston. So throughout the next 30 years, Cunard was the primary holder of the Blue Ribbon, an award for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic by passenger vessel. We talked a little bit about the speed earlier, and so there was something I wanted to throw in here. Uh Um, This is quoting from um, from the Daniel Allen Butler that I quoted from a lot in the last episode. 
And he says, quote, For decades, Cunard had been symbolic of safe, sedate, rather pedestrian ships that crossed the Atlantic reliably, if not spectacularly. Um, reliability and safety had become the company's hallmarks, and indeed, it was the point of pride that the line could boast, in complete truth, that Cunard never lost a life. So back to what we said about, you know, of course, this is not bottom of the barrel, but this is also not as extravagant as some other ways you might travel. Their main thing was getting you there and getting you there safely. Mark Twain, he traveled, you know, extensively uh, all over the place. And some of that was on Cunard. He made some interesting observations about these uh, about the company. He said the Cunard people would not take Noah as first mate until they had worked him through the lower grades and tried him for 10 years or such matter. It takes them about 10 or 15 years to manufacture a captain. But when they have him manufactured to suit, at last, they have full confidence in him. The only order they give a captain is this, brief and to the point. Your ship is loaded. Take her. Speed is nothing. Follow your own road. Deliver her safe. Bring her back safe. Safety is all that is required. So it's interesting hearing Mark Twain writing about this. And Butler also points out that, you know, despite the fact that they did hold the Blue Ribbon, that was more or less coincidental. It wasn't mm-hmm. something they were going out to try and do mm-hmm. like some of these steamship uh, steam line competitions really is a big focus on the end result of the voyage. Want to make sure we get everyone where they want to be. Yeah, it seems like overall, um, Canard's a good example of what a high level functioning organization of any sort does if you do the little things all really well then the big things do tend to get taken care of like the speed records and stuff so mm-hmm. i think it's a good example of just you know why certain organizations seem to win so carrying on with company history in 1879 companies reorganized and named cunard steamships limited 1902 would actually prove to be an interesting year for the marine transport industry because we have the creation of International Mercantile Marine. This is a shipping conglomerate of companies organized in an attempt by J.P. Morgan and his company to dominate the shipping industry. Hmm. Good old fashioned American tycoonism. The companies involved in this would be American Line, Red Star Line, Atlantic Transport Line, White Star Line, Leyland Line. And additionally, they had relationships with the German lines of Hamburg, America, and North German Lloyd lines. A lot of different lines. Was Red Star Line like the Bolshevik version of White Star? (laughs) They're about to be capitalists if JP's involved. So although this experiment would prove unsuccessful, it was enough to get the attention of the British government. In response to that, they decide to subsidize the Lusitania and Mauritania. So it's interesting that you see these vessels being built as a response to a threat to British shipping. That was interesting to me with J.P. Morgan, because reading about that, I didn't I didn't know that he had anything to do with White Star Line or really any of these transatlantic yeah. companies. And then reading about basically how close he came to owning not just some of them, but all of them mm-hmm. is, is crazy. It's interesting seeing, you know, at this point, seeing some of the games that are played to build these empires of, you know, shell companies owning multiple companies and things like that. It's, it's really interesting that it hasn't really changed. In June of 1903, Cunard is able to take a loan from the British government of 2.6 million pounds. That would be repayable over 20 years at 2.75%. 
interest, that's essentially free money. Mm. Like that is that's very favorable terms. Uh, additionally, these ships would receive mail contracts and have an annual subsidy provided by the government. So what the what does Cunard owe all this to? Surely the government's just doing <laughs> this to help out the British shipping industry, right? Like not no, much else going on. Why not just yeah. throw some money around? Both of these vessels were to be built to the British Admiralty's expectations and could be converted to auxiliary cruisers if wartime conditions ever necessitated. So there's there's the rub, right? We're going to give you all this, but uh, you're going to do something for us. What I was kind of reminded of this, like, of course, that's a deal that they're going to take. Absolutely. Give us the money. Like, who's thinking about war? And I, I don't know if this is a great comparison because I don't know too much about it. But at least as a kid, I remember hearing that like, oh, yeah, joining the Army Reserve is, you know, it's cool. Like you get you get stuff paid for, you know, you have to do Army stuff, but you're not going to get deployed or anything. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, after the global war on terror begins, suddenly <laughs> there's the catch. Right, yeah, the the thing happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think um I think it's Francis from Hell of a Way to Die. I think he was telling the story that he was literally in boot camp, I think, when mm-hmm. 9/11 happened or like right before it maybe, and uh-huh. it was what I think he, there were a lot of people that realized, "Oh, that other shoe might actually drop." Right. So in 1934, amidst of the global economic downturns, both Kinard and White Star Lines are struggling. You know, these once proud institutions of British might really, you know, they can't compete. They can't build new vessels, and they're struggling to maintain the ones that they have. Fortunately, the British government once again approaches Cunard and offers a three million pound loan to finish a partially constructed vessel and another five million if they're willing to merge with White Star. Hmm. This merger would take place May 10th, 1934. And this allowed the companies to eliminate older vessels and to limit maintenance costs. You know, you're combining the resources of both of these companies. You're only taking the best. You're getting rid of all the bad stuff. This also allows for the completion of the partially built vessel, which was now named Queen Mary. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of cool seeing how that all comes together. The companies would prove their worth during World War II. Fortunately, the primary vessels of the company were spared although they were extremely useful as troop ships. The company, however, would lose many smaller vessels. Actually, one we've talked about, the Lancastria, was a oh, White yeah. Star Cunard. Oh, yeah, I forgot that was a White Star Cunard. Yeah. Uh, in 1947, Cunard bought out White Star's stake in the company, and they would eventually rename the company Cunard Line. Hmm. The 50s and 60s saw a new threat emerge, and that is airliners. Ah. Interesting that Kennard actually got into the airliner game for a little bit uh, before exiting the business in 1963. They bought a stake in Cunard Eagle Airways. It's interesting when you see like all these different things that companies get into. These ships can't catch a break. You got submarines under the water. You got <laughs> planes up in the sky from all quarters being assailed. <laughs> uh, in 1971, Cunard is purchased by the most British sounding company ever, Trafalgar House. Nice. Uh, this company would operate passenger and cargo operations under the Cunard name, along with hotels and resorts. So we can just see this getting licensed out more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's under the Trafalgar House ownership that the Cunard ship Countess was chartered to act as a troop ship during the Falklands War. This isn't the one that gets hit with an Exocet missile, is it? We'll get there. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just interesting to see these ships still being used even in the 70s and 80s for the same purpose, right? As troop ships. It's, it's interesting that such a parallel. But as you've already kind of said, also of note, the Cunard flagged transport vessel Atlantic Conveyor is actually one of the vessels uh, sunk during the Falklands War. I see. So <laughs> poor Cunard just mm. gets ships sunk in wars. I guess that's a testament to just how many ships they've operated and how long they've operated for. Exactly. Uh, so finally, in 1998, the company is purchased by Carnival Corporation. Today, they actually operate as a luxury brand under the Car- Carnival umbrella of families. And when I say luxury, I went on their website, was playing around just just to see. It's luxury. It's it's not for me. <laughs> and it's not for me. And you. It's not a uh, mow some lawns over the summer and save no, up for. <laughs> um, like you know when we went to like the Formula One races and stuff in Indy, and like we were just walking around the middle of it with like mm-hmm. the the regular people. Yeah, those aren't the people that are getting oh, okay. on these. It's for the people that are up in the, the booths and everything. So are those branded as Cunard? Like you can sail yeah. on a Cunard yeah. ship? You can go to like, if you Google like Cunard lines, you can go on there. Um, I mean, it's not like insane, I guess, for what you get, but it's mm-hmm. just like, it's a lot. <laughs> mm. uh, so currently they operate the Queen Mary 2, the Queen Victoria, and the Queen Elizabeth with the Queen Anne due in 2024. It's interesting because I, I knew some of the early rivalry of White Star and Cunard, and I knew that at some point they merged, and I had no mm-hmm. idea how that gap was filled in. And and honestly, like not even that long after Titanic, in the grand scheme of things, like it's interesting that at the time of Titanic, you hear like White Star versus Cunard and all this, and really that the speed of the Cunard ships are kind of the impetus of pushing Titanic so hard. Now that we've established the uh, background and history, kind of here, let's uh, let's kind of talk about the day of the voyage and, and get into some of that. Two hours in to our Lusitania <laughs> episodes, and we're we're talking about her setting sail. Almost. Lusitania began her 202nd voyage on May 1st, 1915, departing New York for Liverpool. Uh, she was actually running late due to an influx of passengers being added at the last minute. The liner Cameronia had been requisitioned by the British government, and its passengers transferred to Lusitania. Many of them we're actually pretty excited because they're getting a free upgrade <laughs> to a faster, more luxurious ship than what they paid for nice. at the British government's expense. So was Cameronia like older? I actually didn't do any research on it, but it, you know, it's not one of the top, top of the line. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, Mauritania, Aquitania. Uh, so at the time of departure, she had 1,266 passengers and a crew of 696. Interesting to note kind of how full everything is. First and third class were less than half full for this journey. So there's some extra space. Um, Typically, third class, especially going east, is not going to be as full because you don't have the immigration factor Mm -hmm. in there. And then first class, I feel like, you know, it's like when you get on a flight first, like the coach section might be full, but first class, there's sometimes some seats Mm -hmm. because people, you know, just don't want to spend the money. However, second class is kind of that sweet spot, right? Like you got enough money that you don't want to be in third class, but you're not a big spender for first. This is actually overbooked. They're beyond capacity in second class. 
And they actually allow some of them to be uh, bumped up to first class. So Very again, cool. like what a great day, right? Like you paid for second and you're at least getting a taste of the first class life. Mm-hmm. Um, early on in the trip, there's a bit of excitement when three German speaking men are found hiding on board the vessel. Obviously, this raised some eyebrows and the men were detained by Detective Inspector William Pierpoint, who was a Liverpool policeman attached to the ship. Um, These men are detained and locked in cells for further questioning when the ship arrives in Liverpool. I was looking at the notes and how they were. All I saw was the German speaking men Mm -hmm. found on board. And I was like, well, that's not (laughs) strange for the time. (laughs) But I guess the hiding was the suspicious part. Uh, Yeah, yeah, they uh, they were not supposed to be there. So as passengers and crew settled in for the journey, talk is focused on the looming U-boat threat. This had been enhanced by an ad placed in the April 22nd edition of 50 American newspapers. This warning printed next to an ad for Lusitania's return trip to Liverpool reminded those traveling that a state of war existed between Germany and Britain and that any vessel traveling in the declared war zone flying British colors could be at risk. So fun thing with that, um, with the warning, because that's probably one of the more famous parts of the Lusitania story is this this ominous warning appearing in the paper, you know, just before she sets sail and it's signed by the Imperial German Embassy. What's funny, though, is that that's not where it came from. That's not where it mm-hmm. originated. Um, that's not who wrote it, certainly. It was actually the product of a guy named George Virek. He was the editor of the German-American paper The Fatherland oh. and some other members of the New York German-American community. George Virek is, is kind of interesting um, here, obviously, we're talking about World War One. If you look at his Wikipedia, the first thing it calls him is a German-American Nazi agent. So oh. later on, he gets up into some more dastardly deeds. But that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so he tries again after He's this. just a concerned German-American citizen right now. <laughs> uh, so on April 20th, a meeting had been held to discuss possible courses of action to deal with public outcry over increased U-boat attacks. So again, something to keep in mind for this story is that in Lusitania wasn't something out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was particularly uh, seen as particularly reprehensible by the public, but it wasn't the first time this had happened. You know, ships were being sunk all over the place. So after the sinking of the Falaba, which is another one that comes up if you read books on the Lusitania, George Virek remarked that, quote, Sooner or later, some big passenger boat with Americans on board will be sunk by a submarine. Then there will be hell to pay. (laughs) So you can kind of see even the German-American community being concerned over how out of control the U-boat attacks are. Mm -hmm. Whether they think they're justified or not, they can see what's going to happen if the wrong ship gets hit. Yeah, it's sort of the PR game behind the scenes. One of their goals, this this community was trying to make the American public see the situation from the perspective of Germany and trying to basically state their case, seeing this not just from the British or from the American point of view. So one man in this group, a man with the aggressively German name of Dr. Karl Fuhrer, mm. he wanted to place emphasis on what the British blockade was doing to you know, these poor, innocent German children back in the home country, which is an overlooked part of economic warfare, like blockades, is the fact that it does kill people. This isn't a nonviolent way to wage war. People do starve to death. People do freeze to death. So you can't really feel any better about it just because you didn't use a bomb or a missile. Right. 
That's what he's trying to say, basically. But the issue that's pointed out with this strategy by another doctor, a lot of doctors in this journal. So many doctors. It was a lot easier to be a doctor back then. Though, <laughs> you could just kind of say you were a doctor. So the issue pointed out with this, though, is a, an interesting and I think very accurate quote here. The American people cannot visualize the spectacle of 100,000, even half a million German children starving by slow degrees as a result of the British blockade. But they can visualize the pitiful face of a little child drowning amidst the wreckage caused by a German torpedo. It's a good point. It's a very insightful point about the optics Mm -hmm. of war. Mm -hmm. What will people see as an act of war? This blockade that is turning out over months and happens very, very far away from, you know, the battlefield or putting a torpedo in the side of a passenger liner. Um, Whether the logic works out or not, one of those is going to seem much more like an act of war. So a draft was agreed on highlighting that passengers sailed at their own risk through a declared war zone. That warning is, is worded very much as a, you know, just a reminder, just so no one forgets if you are on one of these ships in this area, that's on you. That's not our fault. Isn't that like always the last resort, though, of you doing something you probably shouldn't be doing is when you tell people like, eh, it's this really your, your own problem. risk. Like, I'm, I know I built this dangerous thing, but like, if you get hurt, it's not my fault. So a draft was agreed on highlighting those warnings. This warning was then rushed to the German embassy for approval because they, they needed this to have some weight behind it. And they did that with the knowledge that Lusitania would be sailing in just over a week. So there was concern on their part that maybe this is the ship that it happens to. It is very interesting that like it it's not random. Like there is the concern of this happening. Yeah, there's there's an interesting amount of just kind of chatter around this before it even sails of oh what if the Lusitania gets torpedoed? <laughs> so Virak was connected to a name that some of our listeners might know, and that's Captain Franz von Papen uh, mm-hmm. at the at the German embassy. He uh, the, the the head ambassador was out. So he was basically taking the calls that day. He was big in <laughs> like the German intelligence community. He was basically the ringleader for a lot of the uh, pro-German plots that were going on in the US. Obviously, we didn't know that at the time. He refused to endorse it personally. He basically just wanted to keep his his hands off of this. He didn't have any approval from higher ups to be even talking about this. He he basically refused to put anyone else's name on it. So his suggestion uh, was that they just sign it simply Imperial German Embassy. What a great way to have plausible deniability to sort of say, well, I don't know who approved this. There's no one's name on it. It just says Imperial <laughs> German Embassy. Uh, so. I love that sometimes you can't overestimate how dumb like some things in history are like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly, because that that has a much more ominous. And my understanding of it with before I started researching this, I thought that was something that the German embassy had issued. Mm-hmm. And it it really wasn't. It was just kind of like, hey, they got a phone call one day saying, hey, can we put this in the paper? And like, sure, technically all accurate. So go for it. What did we tell you about calling here? <laughs> yeah, stop calling me. Mr. Virek. Also, I think it's funny because Virek means square in German. <laughs> and it's, it's a funny name for a guy to have. But yeah, he would uh, he would be like a convicted Nazi agent uh, during the World uh, War II. So, so, so he would serve time in prison. And I think two of his sons were killed fighting also for the Germans. I don't know for a fact, but I know that two of his sons got along with him and one of them did not. And the two were the ones that were killed. So I think they were fighting for Germany. 
Okay, I can live with that. I don't know that. I could be slandering his patriotic American <laughs> sons. But given his outlook on things, I I feel like he would not have been cool with his children serving in the U.S. Army. Right. Unless that was just very good cover. True. Right. Uh, so let's go to the other side of the Atlantic now. The British Admiralty have been tracking the U-boat threat from their top secret Room 40. Uh, this group worked to intercept and decode transmissions from German wireless and telegraph operators to military units and diplomats overseas. Uh, this group would actually later uncover the infamous Zimmerman telegraph that I'm sure we'll talk about in a later episode. Room 40 had benefited greatly from a gift from the Russians. <laughs> that gift is a captured German code book. So the code book wouldn't necessarily allow you to just instantly translate things, but you basically got half of the piece of what you need by having that. Now you just need the cipher to make the code book work. So obviously a lot easier to crack it from there. And it's amazing what code breakers can do when they have basically nothing. They're starting mm -hmm. from scratch. So giving them half the answer is kind of like, oh, well, game over. Yeah. So even before Lusitania's departure from New York City, Room 40 had been tracked. We are doing that, right? Even before the Lusitania's departure from New York City, Room 40 had been tracking submarine U-20 under the command of Walter Schwieger. The sub had left port on April 30th and began to cross the North Sea. Schwieger was tracked on May 2nd off the north coast of Scotland, and next he would travel south along the west coast of Ireland and enter the Allied shipping lanes just off the southern coast of Ireland. Um, as events began to unfold, the staff at Room 40 found themselves in a bit of a predicament. There was a known U-boat threat that could be tracked and even have its movements predicted, and there had also been these warnings, almost, you know, explicitly about the Lusitania, that something might happen. Hmm. However, the Room 40 program is so secret that not even the normal Naval Intelligence Division knows what they do and knows <laughs> the information that they have. That, then that's who would normally would notify merchant shipping, mm -hmm. you know, about an issue. Uh, so intelligence gathered from this project was kept in an extremely limited number of hands. We're talking like 10 to 12 people. Mm. This would lead to a situation where the Admiralty could not directly pass on actionable information to shipping companies or their crews for fear that Germany would realize that the British had broken their code. The idea being here, really, they want to hold on this information to know when the German fleet is going to make their breakout. That's when they want to cash this ship in, <laughs> which doesn't ever happen, really. And it, so it turns out they're just sitting on good information forever and not using it. I hadn't made that connection to it that like, oh, what were they waiting for? And yeah, we've, we've exactly. talked about what they were waiting for. Yeah, yeah. Something that wouldn't ever really happen. So now let's talk a little bit more here. We'll kind of wrap this up by talking about the U-20. What do you think life was like on a German U-boat in World War One? I've heard that it was possibly worse than life on other U-boats, um, <laughs> at least at, at least in World War Two. I know I've toured the USS Cobia, which is obviously a, a much later model submarine, and that's pretty tight. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I can't imagine things were better. I know I remember learning on the Cobia tour that everyone was allowed to bathe like once every like 
two weeks or something, except for the cook who ba- who was able to bathe every day. <laughs> That's the perks of being the cook. Because they, they do that tour guide thing where they is like, well, who do you think was the only person on the on the boat who was allowed to bathe every day? And everyone's everyone, like the captain. Everyone gets the captain's like, nope. He was just as dirty as everyone else, <laughs> which is one of the cool egalitarian parts of life on the submarine where you kind of have that less stratified existence. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little yeah. bit. Um, so life on a U-boat, obviously far from glamorous at times. And by at times, I mean, like most of the time, it's a mix of <laughs> at, tropical at all the times, <laughs> tropical heat, stale air, diesel fumes and the smell of 36 men who had not bathed in months. Hmm. Tack onto that, whatever you had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because all those smells are mixing constantly. That was something, that was an aspect I hadn't thought of, because, of course, the smells of closely packed humanity, of course, oil, diesel fuel, you know, whether whatever other chemicals and stuff's going on in there. One thing I hadn't thought of was cooking, you know, mm-hmm. talking about like the cooks, you know, frying up onions and frying up butter and stuff like that. In an enclosed area like that where you, you can't open a window. Well, do you think they just like fried up onions every day just to be like, here you go. That's what it smells like again. Just That's go nose blood to it. <laughs> Believe me, there are worse things it could smell like in here. Fried onions and diesel fuel. It's interesting that those working in room 40 would eventually kind of develop like a parasocial relationship with U-boat captains. They would be able to recognize them by their distinct transmission styles and frequency. <laughs> um, they were good enough to like figure out like, by sound, if it was a U-boat transmission or a terrestrial transmission. Hmm. It's kind of like what you see with like sonar operators, like when like your life becomes this one thing, like you get really good at it. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting that, um, you know, they were able to know like when a different captain might take over a boat, like, oh, this captain's changed. He's changing the way that he's, you know, does his mission log. That's cool. Yeah, I had uh, I'd heard that before about like Morse code, how people who are good with Morse code can you can hear. Mm-hmm. You know, different voices, quote unquote, um, in, in just the, the style that people use. So that's really mm-hmm. cool because, yeah, you think these guys sitting in this room all day just listening to these transmissions probably develop a an interesting relationship. Mm-hmm. U-boat captains had a level of autonomy that was basically unmatched in World War One. They were the sole opinion of when it came to operations once they were at sea. So as a result of this, U-boats generally would take on the personality of their captains. So like anything else, you've got cruel bosses, you've got compassionate leaders, you've got people who are fearless and willing to risk everything. Room 40 notes, there's lazy boats. There's boats <laughs> that they know just want to go out there and if something comes by, they'll take it. But, you know, they're not going to be aggressive. They know that there's some captains who are more afraid that are always talking about, you know, <laughs> you know, being worried seems, about being detected. That seems like the hardest way to exist on a U-boat. Just, just a bundle of nerves. Fear? There will be a kind fear on my U-boat. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. Like, the boats did have personalities. The personality that we're going to look at a little bit deeper here, we've already mentioned him, is Walter Swieger. Swieger was well-liked by his crews, and he's remembered as being fair and considerate. And, you know, he looked to provide what comforts he could for his crew in a very limited way because he didn't have a lot of options. Um, He's noted that he's level-headed and would lead by example to keep his crew calm in stressful situations. So I think that's a huge asset, right? Like if you're sitting on the bottom trying to hide from a destroyer, you don't want your captain 
to be yelling and, you know, causing a scene. Like he needs to be kind of the rock for everybody else. It's like in like in uh, the wolf's call when they're under attack at the beginning and the one guy yells, he yells like full silent mode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Schwieger even went as far as to have a dog on board, a Hmm. dachshund, which was, of course, basically the ship's mascot. It's kind of shaped like a submarine, too. (laughs) By random chance, and this is a story that Eric Larson tells in Dead Wake. By random chance, the crew of U-20 rescued a female dachshund from the wreckage of a vessel that they had sunk. So as they're, you know, on the surface, they're looking through debris, seeing if there's anything worth taking, and a crate with a wiener dog floats over to them. So they scoop it up, and now they have two wiener dogs, a boy and a girl on board. And that means in a few months, they have six wiener dogs on board the U-boat. I do think it's funny that it was a dachshund. Like, what if that's like how they found out that they accidentally torpedoed a German ship? <laughs> German ship. I think it was a Portuguese ship that, that they had hit. They get uh, a, Portu- a Portuguese water dog off it instead, <laughs> and they throw it back overboard. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they'd eventually have four puppies, and they actually gave these away to other U-boats that they <laughs> met out at sea. Um, so they gave out a litter of dachshunds. <laughs> In another incident, Schwieger was in search for fresh food for his crew. And to accomplish this, he actually surfaces amongst three Scottish fishing boats and demands that the fishermen hand over their catch. (laughs) After a successful raid, the captain thanked them and settled his boat down on the sea and the crew prepared to feast on fish. So it's interesting that, you know, I think he had a bit of a fun streak almost in him of like, oh, watch this. You guys are hungry. I'll go get you some fish. And, you know, not even... In like a malevolent way towards the fishermen, just more like, hey, we all know what's up. Just give me the fish and we're good. Yeah. Um, mm, fried fish uh, <laughs> in your enclosed metal tube at the bottom of the uh, seafloor. With 36 yeah. other dudes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He was noted as being particularly ruthless when it came to pursuing the enemy. This included attacking a clearly marked hospital ship, although he was unsuccessful. Schwieger made it clear that he took his mission seriously and wanted to execute it to his fullest ability. Um, You know, he looked at it as a job. His job was to sink enemy ships, and that's what he was going to do. Is there any explanation for the hospital ship thing? Uh, That it belonged to the enemy? (laughs) Just a a total lack of Ruth? Um, So as is so common, though, in men like this, you know, he's also, he shows these humanity, he shows these moments of humanity Amongst his cold, calculating persona, the same man who tries to torpedo a hospital ship is noted as having a really strong reaction after they torpedoed a freighter carrying a load of horses. He watched as both men and beast attempted to leap overboard from the burning ship. And at one point, he watches a, what he described as a beautiful horse jump off the deck and smash into a lifeboat below. With that, he lowered the periscope and ordered the vessel into a dive. So he didn't have to watch the rest of it play out. I don't know. It's interesting that there's still some humanity in there. And I think that's what is important in these stories is that it's not as simple as good guy, bad guy. Schwieger is not clearly. He has no scruples with torpedoing a hospital ship and that's bad, right? We can agree. Uh That's not good, but he does have these moments of humanity. And at the end of the day, he's doing the job that he's been given. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's why this war is interesting. There's not the Nazi ideological component to it. To make another Nazi comparison here, what that last bit reminds me of a bit is the movie Downfall, 
mm-hmm. near the end when it's all falling down. Uh huh. Kind of the final plunge of everyone, you know, taking their their cyanide pills and what have you. And there's the issue of the dog. So Hitler's dog, uh, mm-hmm. Blondie. Is that her I name? think. I'm proud that neither one of us just know that, though. I guess. Like- <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> and the idea that you have this most most evil figure in history has gotten millions and millions of people killed, either directly as his target or incidentally in the war that has started. And when it comes to, because they have to give Blondie a, a cyanide capsule, mm-hmm. and he can't look he can't he certainly can't do it he can't look while it's happening um mm-hmm. and this is you know his his faithful companion um and the idea that someone you know who has no qualms of having people mowed down by the millions at a distance when it gets up close or something you can see it's suddenly oh no i can't look and i think the whole thing is this interesting seeing how the u-boat crews are just regular people mm-hmm. in a miserable situation I think it it's a lot scarier when you realize that they are normal people. And like when you read books like Ordinary Men about like the rise of the Nazis, that Mm -hmm. these aren't not all of them are these like Duke Nukem bad guys. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I mean, on the other side of things here, we're back to World War One of not both sides seeing the Nazis. Right. Exactly. Um, Exactly. (laughs) Is the issue of something that we'll talk about, I think, more next is the issues with cruiser rules mm-hmm. and how when one side <clears throat> when one side starts to violate those or start to make the edge of those more gray the other side is kind of forced to also because you know these rules are here for both of us and you have broken them so right. if i don't then i'm getting played right now exactly um, so yeah talking about things like you hear about submarines violating cruiser rules but also there's the flip side of that where you've got orders of Hey, if you are a British ship and you sink a submarine, you should be machine gunning those guys in the water. Mm-hmm. If you're a submarine crew, you're thinking, well, if that's possibly how this ends, if this is you know disguised and has guns on board, I'm just going to torpedo it right now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You lose that cover, that plausible deniability. If you're the British at that point of like, well, it was clearly it wasn't a warship that they they torpedoed. Mm-hmm. And I do. I just think it's interesting looking at that hum- human side of someone like a Schwieger who He's clearly capable of doing horrible things. He knew what he was doing when he torpedoed the Lusitania, right? Mm-hmm. Like he did, he knew what ship he was sinking and that it was a passenger liner. But also, clearly, he's not like a bloodthirsty monster. You know what I mean? Like he's also a normal person. And I think that's what makes it like all the scarier. It's easier when something can just be a caricature of bad, right? It's way more interesting when you realize like what, what gets you to that point where you're willing to do those things. Mm-hmm. To make one final connection to Downfall, that was one of the criticisms of the movie is that, well, you made him look like a human being. And unfortunately, that's what he was. Yeah, like that's 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 the scary part, right? Yeah, like it's not some monster. So, yeah, I think that's where we'll leave it today. We have just departed the dock and Schwieger is on patrol and room 40 is sitting on a bunch of information. I think we'll pick it up next week. Uh, we'll do the uh, we'll talk about the sinking. Finally, we'll do the loss part of this uh, this podcast. So yeah, with that out of the way, we've been podcasting for like three and a half hours almost now. I think we'll uh, I think we'll call it quits for the day. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, do check out the Patreon if you're interested. It's a good time. We we like seeing you over there. 
with all that said, have a great week. Franz von Papen was the most devious bastard in New York City. <laughs> you should put that in there, too. I'll, I'll put that at the end. <laughs> <laughs>